Well, as I said at the opening of worship, the church's celebration of Easter continues. It's not done. And so today, I want to turn our attention to a story that also happened on Easter Sunday. It's the way the Gospel of Luke records the events of the latter half of that first Easter Sunday. So uh, let me encourage you to take a Bible, if you've got one handy, and uh, turn to the 24th chapter of Luke's Gospel. That's the very last chapter in the book, so it's fairly easy to find. It's a wonderful and intriguing story that Luke records for us, and it begins in verse 13. So let's read along together. Luke says this. He says, Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. And he said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So they went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Then they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, and there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. 
This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. Let me ask you to pray with me. Father God, to you, all hearts are open, all desires are known, and from you no secrets are hidden. And so come now and cleanse the thoughts of our hearts and minds that your truth might be revealed to us and that we might see Jesus for who he truly is. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, let me uh, begin with a question this morning. Does Easter really make a difference? I mean, think about how much energy we put into Easter. Even in the midst of a global pandemic, we were able to make a big deal out of last Sunday with all sorts of special celebrations. But then most of us woke up the next day on Monday morning to find a world that still looked very much like it had before Easter. We awoke to news of more deaths from coronavirus. We awoke to news of destruction and death from a line of spring storms that wreaked havoc across the eastern seaboard. We awoke to stories of more economic stress and financial strain and, and fears of those who, who won't be able to pay their bills next month. We awoke to more stories of political division and distrust that just seems to go deeper and deeper every day. And so it just forces us to ask a question. If Jesus really is the Son of God, and if He really is risen from the dead, then shouldn't the world look a little bit less broken by now? Well, it's a fair question. But before we can answer it, I think we have to ask ourselves a prior question, and it is this. What kind of Messiah is it we're expecting Jesus to be? What exactly is it that we think Jesus is supposed to do for us? That's the question that the story we just read out of Luke chapter 24 really forces us to ask ourselves. The story, as I've already said, takes place late in the day on that first Easter Sunday. A couple of disciples, one of whom is named Cleopas, the other whose name is not given to us, are walking, making the journey from Jerusalem back to their home in a village called Emmaus. Now, we'll say more about this a little bit later, but for those who are interested in such things, you might be curious to know that to this day, scholars can't be exactly sure where Emmaus is. Archaeologists have uncovered a couple of different sites that potentially went by that name. The problem is neither one of them fits perfectly with the geographical details that Luke gives us. But the amount of data that they have uncovered gives us assurance that Emmaus was a real place. But far more important than the geography and the real estate is the mindset and the heart set of these two men as they made that journey. They were depressed. They were saddened. The, the scripture says they were dejected. They were, they were downcast. Uh, simply put, they were upset, heartbroken. You see, like so many others, they had gone to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. 
that great celebration of God's release from slavery of the Jewish people all those hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. And while they had been there for the celebrations, they had gotten swept up in the excitement surrounding this this traveling rabbi who was known as Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it's not clear whether they had gone to Jerusalem already believing in him or if they had only learned of him during their time there. But whichever the case, they had come, as we learn, to place their hope in Jesus. But what exactly does that mean? What were they hoping for? What is it they thought Jesus was going to do? Well, to answer that question, we need some context. You see, by this point in history, the nation of Israel had spent now several hundred years under the boot of one foreign power or another. First it had been the Assyrians, and then it had been the Babylonians, and then it was the Persians, and then it was the Greeks, and and then the most recent oppressor had been the Romans. And that means that now for several hundred years, the Jewish people had longed for and prayed for and yearned for their freedom. They longed for the day when those foreign oppressors would be defeated and overthrown and and Israel could be restored to its former glory and, and restored to the freedom that it had once had. That explains the fervor and excitement that surrounded their hopes for and their belief in the coming of a Messiah. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the the word Messiah or Mashiach simply means anointed one. A Messiah would have been anybody anointed by God to fulfill a special purpose. And in actuality, there were many people in the Old Testament, many categories of people to whom that word could apply. But by the time we get to the first century A.D., the time when this story takes place, the word Messiah had taken on a heightened meaning, a special significance. The word Messiah now referred to their belief that God was going to send His anointed one who would come and overthrow the Romans, run them out of town, and give Israel their freedom back. That means the word Messiah had taken on both military and and political connotations. We can pretty safely assume that these two men, Cleopas and his unnamed friend, had had come to place that kind of hope in Jesus. In fact, we don't have to assume it. They pretty much say exactly that. They said in verse 21, we had hoped that he, speaking of Jesus, that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. The word redeem is key there. To redeem something is to buy it back, to claim it back from someone else and restore it to its rightful owner. That's what they had hoped for, as had so many others around them. The problem for them was that when Jesus had been executed as a common criminal between two other thugs, it was proof positive to them that those hopes, well, they'd been misplaced. As far as they were concerned, there was no way that a Messiah would allow himself to get killed in the most humiliating form of defeat known to man at the time. Listen again to the words these two men speak in verses 20 and 21. They say, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. 
But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now notice the contrast of two important themes in that sentence. Two themes that absolutely should not go together. The themes of crucifixion and hope. As far as these men were concerned, as far as the average thinker would have been concerned, there's, there's no way that crucifixion and hope could have anything to do with each other. There's no way that suffering and redemption could ever be related. The two concepts were mutually exclusive. That's why they were depressed and dejected. Their hopes had evaporated, or so they thought. The challenge is that Jesus has a way of taking what we think and what we assume and what we expect and flipping it upside down, and this is perhaps the the most extreme example of that. Jesus enters into the picture at this point. It's a curious way the story unfolds. Jesus kind of strolls up beside them and walks along with them as they stride back to Emmaus. But they don't recognize Jesus. In fact, the text actually says they were kept from recognizing him. Now, that's an interesting statement. They were kept from recognizing him. What or who kept them from seeing him? Well, had we time, we could explore that question just as a separate conversation. For now, we'll simply say it this way. The only way you can see Jesus for who he really is is if God reveals him to you that way. Human logic will never bring you to the conclusion that a person who was crucified is actually the Messiah and Savior of the world. But for purposes of this story, that little detail is helpful because it helps to create this scene for for complete honesty. You see, these men, because they didn't recognize Jesus for who he was, felt no need to clean up their act or to pretty up their thoughts or to put forward a good face. You know how it works. You, you pass somebody in the hallway that you know, and they say, how you doing? And you instinctively respond, oh, I'm fine. When the truth is you may not be fine. You may be torn up inside. You may be grieving, but you're surely not going to let somebody else know that. Well, in this case, that temptation was taken away. Thinking that this person was just a complete stranger, the men were just honest, and they let their sorrow hang out there for all to see. This gave Jesus exactly the open door that he needed to take their expectations and turn them around. He, he used this as a teaching moment to give them a new way of thinking and a new way of perceiving. And so the scriptures tell us that, that he began to walk them back through the stories of the Old Testament to show them something that they'd never seen before. He wanted to help them grasp that this was actually what was supposed to happen. That as unlikely as it may seem, the humiliation of the cross was not a defeat of God's plan to save Israel, but that actually was the very fulfillment of that plan. That, that as crazy as it may sound, this was God's moment of greatest victory because the crucifixion was exactly what God had designed and intended Here's how Jesus put it in a rhetorical question to them. He said, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? In other words, the way things had gone on that terrible dark Friday afternoon was was actually the way God had intended them to go. 
He had designed the plan to go exactly this way. God's great act of saving Israel and in fact of saving the entire world was not going to happen through military victory or political intrigue. Instead, it was going to take place through this tremendous act of suffering love. God's great plan of redemption was now being carried out by this one who had hung on a cross until he was dead and then walked out of a sealed grave three days later. This is the completely illogical thing about the gospel. There's absolutely nothing about logical thinking, about human perception, which would tell us that the cross is anything other than a sign of defeat. Now, we tend to forget that because the cross has become so commonplace. The cross has almost taken on now a a kind of good luck charm status among us. We almost treat it as though it's some religious version of a lucky rabbit's foot. We wear crosses around our necks as jewelry. We display them in our homes as symbols of art. And there's kind of an unspoken assumption that the cross, if we venerate it right and treat it correctly, will somehow protect us from harm. But in its original form, the cross represents God's willingness to enter into harm, not to avoid it. The cross represents the fact that that God willingly enters into the sorrow, the pain, the death, the brokenness that our sinful world so readily creates. That's why the Apostle Paul, a little bit later in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Corinthians, will say this. He will say that the crucified Christ, the the very notion of a Messiah who suffers, is, quote, a stumbling block to the Jews and it is foolishness to the Gentiles. Now, to put that in context, in that day and time, according to Paul's way of thinking, there were only two categories of people in the world. You were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. And Paul says that by human logic, the cross doesn't make sense to either one. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's foolishness to the Greeks. It's foolishness to say that when a man willingly suffers, he is bringing about redemption. And yet... In the logic of God's upside-down kingdom, that is exactly what happens. The cross is the surest sign of, of God's power because the cross reveals the power of suffering love. The cross reveals the fact that that Jesus didn't come into the world to save us from suffering. He came into the world to save us through suffering. God knowingly, willingly, lovingly enters into our shame and our guilt and takes our brokenness upon himself and he dies under the weight of it all. And then three days later, walks out of a tomb to prove that not even death can overcome the power of God's redemptive, patient and suffering love. So, let's go back to the question we asked at the beginning a moment ago. What kind of Messiah are we expecting Jesus to be? 
What, what is it that we think Jesus is supposed to do for us? What exactly are we assuming that Easter is going to accomplish for us? If we expect that Jesus came into the world to, to rescue us from pain and suffering and hardship, well, then inevitably Easter is going to leave us disappointed because empty tomb or not, this world is going to continue to rattle on towards its own self-destruction and sooner or later all of us are going to suffer in the wake of it. And so the promise of Easter is not that God came into the world in Jesus Christ to protect us from pain and hardship. He came into the world to promise us that not even pain and hardship can keep Him from accomplishing His purposes. And that in fact, as unlikely as it may sound, Sometimes pain and hardship may be the very place where he accomplishes his purpose. I recently finished reading a wonderful book entitled uh, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. Some of you have heard her name. Corey Ten Boom was born in 1892 in Holland, otherwise known as the Netherlands, where where she grew up in a very modest home that she shared with her parents, a brother, two sisters, and a, and a handful of aunts that came to live with them at various times. Uh, Corey's father was renowned in their village as an expert watchmaker, but, but he was also known to be a person of great faith. He wasn't stern or heavy-handed with the way he expressed his faith, but actually it was a source for him of great joy and delight, and, and people were naturally drawn to him. Her father had a way of weaving scripture and, and spiritual insight to the routine matters of daily life so that, so that all of life kind of permeated with the truth of God's presence. Not surprisingly then, both Corey and, and all of her siblings grew up to adopt that faith as their own. As a young woman, Corey was already beginning to learn how to allow that faith to, to shape how she perceived the world. At one point, she fell in love with a young man whom she was convinced was going to ask her to marry him, but, but then as circumstances turned out, that didn't happen, and, and she was devastated and yet she leaned upon her faith and, and learned to see how that hurt was allowing her to redirect God's love for her in other ways. And so she began a ministry of outreach to the poor of their neighborhood. And, and the household she lived in became well known as a place of hospitality. There was no way to know then, however, how much Corey's faith was going to be tested later. You see, in May of 1940, Germany invaded Holland. At first, the Ten Boom family managed under Nazi occupation reasonably well. The watch shop continued to operate. They were able to maintain some semblance of normal life. But as time went on, things got harder. More importantly, they began to notice with great anguish of soul what was happening to their Jewish neighbors they had heard Hitler's angry, hateful speeches blasting across the German radio stations that they'd been picking up for years, but they never imagined that it would come as close to them as it had. But now here it was. Jewish shops were being closed down. Jewish neighbors were being arrested. Some, they came to understand, were now being shipped off to concentration camps. And they wondered what, if anything, they were supposed to do about this. 
Well, one day God answered that question for them in a very direct way. In May of 1942, there was a knock at their door. Corey opened it to find a displaced Jewish woman standing there. Her husband had been arrested. She had nowhere to go and was fearing for her life. And Corey knew in that instant what she had to do. Her family agreed. They brought her in and gave her shelter, even though doing so was strictly forbidden by the Nazi authorities and placed the Ten Boom family at great risk. That began their active involvement in the Dutch underground. Over the next 18 months, in a sequence of events that would rival anything a Hollywood script could weave together with with intrigue and adventure, they began actively working to build a network of fellow uh, underground resistors who helped them smuggle countless Jews out to safety. But then they began to encounter some Jewish friends who couldn't be smuggled for a variety of reasons. And so they began to provide housing for them right there in their own home, right under the noses of the Nazi occupiers. They even had a wall built in Corey's bedroom that created a void of just a few feet where a handful of people could be stored in an emergency. And and every night they would practice so that if there were to be a raid, their German, or excuse me, their their Jewish guest could, could safely hide there. Well, that's exactly what happened. In February of 1944, the Nazis uncovered their network, and they raided the home. The six or seven Jewish guests who were living there hid in that space, and as the story would later unfold, all of them were saved because of it. But the Ten Boom family didn't fare quite as well. They were all arrested, put in prison. Corey's father, who by this point was elderly and suffering from ill health, died within about two weeks of his incarceration. It was just physically too much for his body to absorb. Some of the other siblings were released for various reasons, but but Corey and her sister Betsy were singled out for uniquely harsh punishment. Over the next weeks and months, they would be transferred through a series of German prison camps, each one becoming harsher than the last. Finally, by the summer, they found themselves at the Ravensbrück concentration camp deep within Germany. Just before being sent there, they had momentarily glimpsed a hope that they were going to be released, but then they found themselves in the most harsh circumstances you could imagine. Along with many other women, they were crammed into a barracks that was now housing ten times more people than it had been designed to hold. The sanitation in the place was was barely existent. The stench was gut-wrenching. Women slept three and, and four to a cot on a straw mattress that was infested with fleas. During the day, they were subjected to harsh labor. And as Corey would write, she began to feel the joy that she had once known of God's presence seeping out of her as it was replaced by a growing hatred of her German captors. But her sister Betsy saw things through a different set of eyes. Betsy figured out that because the conditions in their barracks were so horrific, the German guards who had watch of the place almost never set foot inside. 
that created some freedom and some space for, for Corey and Betsy to hold nightly prayer meetings with the other women who slept near them. And even more importantly, each night they would bring out the single copy of the Bible that they had quite ingeniously managed to smuggle in with them and would read openly from the Scriptures. Now, had they been in, in any other setting, that kind of activity would have been strictly forbidden and it would have been harshly punished. And so at one point, Betsy actually spoke to Corey in the midst of all of this harshness about how blessed they were and how fortunate they were to be in the place where they were because now they could bring hope and a message of God's love to women who otherwise would feel cut off and isolated from it. Now, to put that in context, the conditions there were so poor that Betsy Tin Boom grew ill from malnutrition and disease, and she would eventually die in that miserable place. Betsy Ten Boom would, would never see freedom again. But to hear Corey tell it, who, who lived through that and, and went on to have a long and productive life of ministry to others, reaching out to the, to the despised and the rejected, to hear her tell the story, Betsy never once despaired of their circumstances because she was able through the eyes of her faith to see how God was using this horrible moment to bring about something beautiful. And to be a channel of love and life to folk who otherwise would never know it. Now, there are a couple of ways you could look at that story. You could look at it and ask, how could God allow something like that to happen? What kind of God would allow something like the Holocaust to take place? What kind of God allows that kind of innocent suffering you know, plenty of people have asked that question, understandably so. And because they can't come up with a satisfactory answer to it, they conclude either God isn't real or even worse, that God isn't loving. And as believers, we have to acknowledge the honesty of that question and be willing to admit that we don't have easy answers. We can't provide quick, simple explanations for suffering. But there's also a different way to look at that same story. You could look at that situation and ask, what kind of God could take something so horrible, so ugly, so evil, and use even that to bring about something that is good and life-giving and beautiful? The men who we read about walking back to Emmaus, I think they began their day asking that former question, what kind of God would allow this to happen? But after they meet the risen Christ and He reveals the Scriptures to them, they learn to ask the other question, what kind of God could take something so horrible as Good Friday and turn it into something as wonderful as Easter Sunday? And so their way of seeing the world, the way of seeing God, it all changed. They now saw the tragic events of that Friday afternoon as the fulfillment of God's plan for salvation for them and for the entire world. God saves us through 
suffering love. Now, my prayer is that this story will both teach us and encourage us to ask that second kind of question. What kind of God can bring order where there should only be chaos? What kind of God can bring light where there should be only darkness? What kind of God can bring purpose and faith where there should be only meaningless suffering? What kind of God can bring life even in a place where the world says there should only be death? What would happen if we, for example, were to apply that question to our current circumstances? There is no getting around that there is great hardship right now. The worldwide shutdown that we're all living through has brought all kinds of disruption and and suffering. There's uncertainty. There's anxiety over the future. There's economic pressure to say nothing of the unbearable pain for the tens of thousands of people who've had to bury loved ones who have died of this disease and so when we look at a situation like the one we're in, it's, it's unavoidable that at some point we're going to ask, what kind of God could allow this to happen? And there are moments when all we can do is, is grieve what we've lost. But there are also moments when we can learn to ask, what is God accomplishing through this? What kind of beauty, what kind of Redemption is God causing to happen because of the crisis that we are in. Think of how, for example, many of our priorities in life have recently been reset because some of the busyness that we normally uh, distract ourselves with has been taken away from us. Think about some of the families that right now are, are being restored because they're spending so much time together. Think of the generosity that's being promoted and nurtured in people because we're now being forced to look beyond our own needs and and see the interconnectedness of the human family. What kind of God could take a global pandemic and, and bring beauty out of it? Well, I'll tell you the answer to that question. It's the same God who can bring Jesus through a cross into death and then out an empty tomb on the other side to bring redemption and salvation and forgiveness of sin and eternal life to anybody who will receive it. I said a moment ago that we aren't real sure where the biblical village of Emmaus is, and scholars will continue debate, to debate that, but, but I would suggest to you that in reality, all of us know where Emmaus is, because at some point or another, we've all been there. We all know what it feels like to make that long, slow, painful walk to a place where our hopes are dashed and our dreams die. The disease that just won't be cured, 
the wayward family member who just won't see the light and come home. The loneliness that just won't seem to end. The injustice that won't seem to be overturned. The hurt that won't seem to heal. At some point, we will look at those kinds of circumstances and be forced to ask, what kind of God would allow this to happen? But my prayer is that as that question forms in our mind, we will also perceive the risen Christ standing there with us, revealing to us a God who can bring hope and purpose even there. May God open our eyes to see a Christ, a Messiah, a Jesus who was both crucified and resurrected. May we come to know that God. Would you pray with me? Father, I come to you right in these moments on behalf of all those listening today who are hurting, who are wrestling with sorrow, with grief, with pain, who are living through suffering of their own, who are, who are experiencing what feels to be like their own private Good Friday. Lord, I hold them up into your presence and I ask for your healing and for your comfort and for your blessing but for all of us, O oh God, I ask that you would open our eyes that we might see the risen Christ among us, that we might come to know and to, to understand that even when it, it, it appears that hope has been lost forever, that even then you are at work bringing about good in ways that we cannot imagine. May the Christ who was risen from that grave now be raised up to live within us that we might see the world through his eyes, that we might come to understand how he is at work here and now to bring about our hope and our good. Father, thank you that you are the kind of God who can bring Sunday out of Friday, life out of death. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends, let me encourage you to consider how you need to respond to this story today. First and foremost, if you've never seen Jesus for who He is, is the risen Son of God, and acknowledged Him as Savior, then, then my prayer is that, that your eyes will be open today, that you will see that and experience that. And if that's where you are and, and you want somebody to pray with you and to dialogue with you to understand more what that means, connect with us, let us hear from you. Or perhaps you're somebody who, who already has placed your trust there, but circumstances in recent days or months or even years have, have caused you to question His love. My prayer is that this story will redirect your eyes to see the risen Christ offering Himself to you. If there's anything we can do here at the church to, to be a partner with you as you wrestle through that and pray through that, again, let us hear from you. We'd, we'd love to know and love to come alongside you. But, but may we all... May we all see the risen Christ for who he is. And now, let's close out our worship and let's sing together one of the great hymns of our faith.